Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out today in New York with Rama Allen, who's the Executive Creative Director of The Mill in New York, which is one of the world's foremost creative effects businesses. And he's also the head of the uh, innovation initiative there called The Lab. Rama, it's cool to see you. It's nice to see you again, Mike. You realize the last time we uh, hung out, it was actually in Ecuador. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we <laughs> briefly is, crossed paths there. <laughs> which is not something you can say about everyone. So I, no. I feel like we at least bonded in this uh, strange emerging market. <laughs> yeah, it felt it, it felt odd to run into so many great people there. But it was because I'm like, what, what are we doing in Ecuador? Why are we all here at once? And it was just a it was a it was a nice place. It was to be. like a strange episode of Lost. Yeah, it was. <laughs> How have we all gotten here? <laughs> uh, so you know, when we when we last saw each other, um, uh, you were giving a talk about virtual reality, mm-hmm. and uh, this is something. Uh, which is, I think that was about almost six months ago, but it, it's now, it feels like it's hit prime time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where, where are we at in terms of virtual reality? Like, what's the current state of the art? Uh, well, the current state of the art, I think, is, I mean, a lot of the focus right now is on room-scale virtual reality. You have the two big heavy hitters that everybody knows, um, uh, HTC and Steam working on the Vive, and you have, of course, Oculus. And, and room-scale VR is the big transition now for consumers, at least, to be able to have uh, six degrees of freedom within a virtual environment. So they are able to walk around a volume and actually interact with things using, using these wands, for lack of a better term. And it's great because it gets people up off the seat and allows them to feel more presence because they can navigate an environment um, and have parallax and look underneath things and over things. So that, at least consumer facing, is what the the big wave is in this this first quarter of 2016. What was it prior to that? Was it couch scale VR? Yeah, I guess you could call it couch scale <laughs> VR um, because you didn't have the ability to move around. There was very limited head tracking, so you could move your head around a little bit, but you couldn't get up and walk around. And uh, the scale of these things will get bigger and bigger um, as we introduce uh, almost like an infinite moving floor underneath people allows us to get beyond the scale of room scale and be able to walk from here to Washington DC if we want to. Right. Um, so that'll be that'll be interesting too, but that's further down the road. How, how do you design for that? I mean, presumably you don't have to have environments that are just room sized. But how do you stop, you know, that, remember when they first brought up the Nintendo Wii, they had to suddenly build hand straps in because these things were going flying. Right. So how do you constrain people with an environment without them destroying the environment they're in? Well, they have, um, so Vive is the first, are the first people to really come out with um, the vocabulary for that. And it's it's essentially like a virtual nanny. It's these, these semi-transparent walls that'll appear as you start to exceed the boundaries of, of the room sensors. you're in. Yeah, right. of, the, of the room that you're in so that you won't trip and fall or hurt hurt yourself. But of course that breaks the presence, it breaks the illusion of being somewhere. So for now, that's what's going to work. Um, but, uh, and I'm sure it'll be used in almost everything for this year, and then we'll figure out something better. So, so presumably in the same way people now build like um, home entertainment rooms, do you think we'll have VR rooms? Oh, absolutely. Uh, which yeah. pres- hopefully have not too much furniture and maybe furry walls. <laughs> yeah, Fur- furry and rubber walls, that'll right. be it. So the 70s um, are gonna come back. <laughs> yeah, they'll be, yeah, they'll be screen-proof. Um, yeah, I think I think the the sense, the sort of playroom or the den, um, these will become spaces where people have 
um, solitary or collaborative virtual reality experiences or mixed reality experiences. I mean, the, the, the headsets are all going to eventually incorporate mixed reality or augmented reality. So you just have this room that you play in that you can tra transition into anything you want it to be. One of the difficulties as a filmmaker in this area is that you have to, as you said, come up with a new vocabulary uh, mm -hmm. for dealing with not just effects, but practical situations mm -hmm. that we haven't dealt with before. Uh, what are some of the ways that people are now innovating around that to, to, to try to extend the, the storytelling abilities? That's a very good question because, to be honest, I don't know if it's been truly cracked by anybody. I think. What's interesting about being a filmmaker now in, in VR is that we're operating in, in a realm of enormous uncertainty um, because the technology keeps changing and the, and the model keeps changing. And basically everything that, every, that, that we make, every experiment or final project, um, be it good, bad, or odd, is an experiment that helps clear up some of that uncertainty, but it still exists. The cloud is thick and heavy. So, so saying that we've that there are any existing models for controlling point of interest or, or multiple layers of action in a film, I, I can't say that exists quite yet. I think that there's a lot that filmmakers have to learn from video game developers and a lot that video game developers can learn from filmmakers and somewhere in between will be this new narrative interactive model. One of the things that comes to mind is the project you worked on for Gatorade, mm -hmm. um, where you, in a way, tried to think beyond just how do you make someone feel like a baseball player. Right. You wanted them to situate them in as if you were them, and felt the energy of their presence. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things you did on, on that project? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's there's getting the opportunity to stand in someone else's shoes is beyond tantalizing in, in virtual reality. And to stand in the shoes of somebody that you aspire to be or you consider a hero even greater. So that was essentially the brief that we got from our client is like, how do you become Bryce Harper? Um, and at the time and still currently right now, there is no elegant way of uh, putting a camera array on somebody's head and becoming them. Um, for one thing, uh, humans move erratically, um, and when they move differently than what you're sensing in, in real space, you get a disassociative quality, uh, which makes you motion sick or gives you VR sickness. Um, and uh, the joke was, I was, I had given to the client, was like, well, we could do this if we decapitate Bryce Harper and stick cameras where his head is. Um, and he stands very still. His agent wasn't down with that. No, they were not. They they didn't think that was particularly funny. I think I was the only person laughing on the <laughs> phone call at that point. So so what I decided to do was use a third person to first person transition, um, like a lot of filmmakers do, um, to get to the POV. So I introduced Bryce Harper so that you connect with him and you get this um, idea that you can hear his thoughts. So I'm slowly moving the viewer into his private internal space right. by hearing this this silent this 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 thought process he's having in the warm-up circle. And then he as he turns and walks towards you, I create this magical transition in which you teleport into his body and appear in the batter's box. But to create that first person POV and to become Bryce Harper, we had to rebuild him completely in CG. And and in doing so, you get to, you know, feel like you're have possessed his body and you can still hear his internal monologue so I've used that narrative for that, that so, so you can, you can actually almost hear his self talk as he's absolutely. as he's swinging for the absolutely and we even the basically the way I recorded the audio uh, I used binaural uh, 
microphones, which are right. essentially like headphones he stuck in his ears, and then he would talk, and I would riff with him, and he would talk about what he was thinking about pitches, and we used all that to create the intro monologue. So it actually sounds like it's coming out of your own head. Um, it's a very strange feeling. Huh. Um, but so given the opportunity to create a completely CG Bryce Harper um, so that you can take over his body, the, I was like, well, let's just hyperbolize the experience. Like, what can we do to make this, um, this virtual reality better than regular reality? And so I chose to stylize his hero status. So he's, you know, athletes, modern athletes are often, they're, they're sort of like our real world superheroes. And so I took a lot of film from comic books and, and superhero costumes and created a new uniform for Bryce Harper and made him effervescent, full of nuclear energy and all this sparkling crazy stuff. And, and you, get to, you get to possess that and go through an entire batting sequence with him. Yeah, I, I think it'll be extraordinary in some ways because I mean, one of the things I've been wondering was like, what's the difference going to be between civilian VR and professional VR? Mm. And I guess it's some of this ability to create not just virtual reality, but a better reality. Mm -hmm. that'll, oh. that'll be in the domain of the professional VR makers. And I think it'll be really similar to the arc that we went through with digital filmmaking. Um, you know, the uh, when the digital filmmaking become more and more prevalent, now the pros were basically doing all the heavy lifting and the photo visual effects and the really tricky yeah. stuff. But over time, the cost goes down and it becomes more democratized. And it's an iMovie. Yeah, and so, you, <laughs> and so you have people posting things to YouTube that are phenomenal, that can almost look like they're in a feature film. The same thing will happen with virtual reality. There's a there's a threshold we have to get past, and consumer stuff is going to look like consumer stuff, and then eventually it's going to be magnificent. You know that threshold is an, as a name. It's called America's Funniest Home VR. <laughs> yeah, America's Home VR. We've crossed that. Then, then you know, we're into the second. Oh boy, I I think I could, I think I could pass on that. I think it was last week I saw a post from Mark Zuckerberg saying that. You know, he was hoping that he's going to capture his baby's first steps mm -hmm. in VR, and it sort of struck me that you, you, for the, it sort of crystallized why they're doing Oculus because mm -hmm. they're imagining a world where you're not just seeing people's gratuitous selfies; it's mm -hmm. people's gratuitous VR selfies. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 just like um, every every evolution of of sort of consumer grade filmmaking from Super 8 cameras to um, camcorders and so on, there is the first thing people make are home videos. They, they shoot their children, they shoot their vacations, they take pictures of themselves making snowmen. What are you talking about? They make their sex videos. And they also, and people always say there's only two reasons to own a home video camera. Right. Your kids and your sex life. And that's probably inevitable. <laughs> um, super inevitable, in fact. Um, but the, the cool thing, like home videos, even old Super 8s, they're basically, you know, memories frozen on celluloid. And I think what's interesting about the VR revolution is that you will be able to relive these memories and feel a sense of presence in them. So it's much more transportive. And so right. you're, you're storing not just films, but memories in, in, a, in a much more real sense of memory. And potentially relive them in ways that you didn't live them at the time. Exactly. Because yeah. you will have a, a perspective you didn't have because you can't see all around yourself. Exactly. Yeah, you can go back and see what was what uh, Aunt Cindy was doing at the picnic table while the kids were uh, lighting the house on fire. <laughs> Never noticed that because you're watching the house on fire the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um, the point you raise about storytelling, I think, is really interesting because it's not easy making stories in 2D. Mm. Uh, it's not easy in 3D. It's even more difficult in sort of 360 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember years ago going to see Sleep No More in New York, that sort of the, that immersive visualization of Macbeth. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me that 
it was an amazing experience, but it was a terrible way to deliver a story. Mm. Uh, so how do you do that in VR? Like, I mean, how, how are some of the ways that people are now thinking about telling stories when you don't have the luxury of a linear take? Right. Well, this is this comes into something I call about. Uh, I mean, previously filmmakers have had the dictatorship of attention, uh, the ability to tell a viewer exactly where to look using editorial techniques and, and framing, like. You know, here's a two shot of two people talking, and then I'm going to go over the shoulder so I can see her reaction. So you're really making those things sink in. Now that we have this theater in the round experience, um, there's a lot of different experiments in driving point of interest. Where does somebody look at the time that I want them to look? And right now, the most effective is the simplest. It's audio cues. We use audio, like snapping next to somebody's head to be like, oh, look over here. Okay, look over here. And um, it's relatively effective, but the, the thing as, as, the, as the storytelling and the world building gets more complicated, we're going to have to come up with something additional. And so there's probably opportunities um, using um, eye tracking to control mixed time. So if we have, so as a filmmaker, you always have primary, secondary, and tertiary action perhaps in a scene. And you have a master scene, you know, somebody's arguing over here, somebody's watching on over here, and somebody is like videotaping it over here and, um, in different parts of the room. Um, I'm making hand gestures like uh, that works on audio. Um, and the, the problem with that in VR is that somebody's going to miss all these key actions that need to interlace at, at a certain time to make an effect. And what's interesting about perhaps using eye tracking uh, to control this action is they're based on gaze. If you're looking at something and you look away from something else, time can slow somewhere else in the scene while you're paying attention to something else and then pick back up on the same timeline when you glance back over. It's a godlike power to film where it's like something only exists if you're looking at it. We're getting into the realms of quantum mechanics. Now. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But there's something really fascinating about that. I don't know if necessarily it's going to work, and I don't think um, there are very many experiments that have proven that out yet, but over the course of the next year, I'm sure we'll see some. It makes you start to think that you're living in a hologram again, doesn't it? That, <laughs> that you know, to save computational power, the rest of the universe doesn't exist right. <laughs> until you, you know, until, until, until you look at it, it spins yeah. back up into existence. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what, what do you What do you guys been experimenting with on the mill? You know, with not just VR, but some of these other technologies at the moment. Well, um, we're looking. We're spending a lot of time on mixed reality or, or augmented reality. Um, we're developing applications that we're using right now. They're simply they're used as set tools. Um, uh, we have the ability um, for directors to see virtual objects in space in real time uh, on set using simple tablet devices. Um, you know, we make a lot of CG cars and monsters and explosions. And and the hard part of being a director is like, where's that going to be in my shot when it's not there? Um, so we're we've developed we're de developing that using augmented reality, um, which is a nice production tool. Uh, we have. We're tinkering with holograms a little bit right now. Um, we're also tinkering with um, biometrics uh, as an input device uh, to create generative artwork or to even create a new interaction method for driving narrative. Um, if I want to steer left or right, um, what happens when you don't use your voice or your eyes or your hands but you use your emotional state to drive a narrative huh. or to create visuals? Um, there's so you're saying as, as you get more frightened or you get excited, yeah. it, it would change parts of the story? Yeah, the story could react to the way that you're feeling, yeah. um, as opposed to you telling the story what you're doing. Well, what, what's the input on that, like an like a ECG or something? Or? Yeah, well we have, what we've, we, we've been rolling our own sensors right now, but using uh, galvanic skin response, body temperature, heart rate, um, we do have... You could uh, use an Apple Watch, basically. You could use an Apple Watch, yeah. And, and we also have 
uh, one model that's running with an EEG headset. Um, but it's very complicated. It's 14 sensors, and it's almost too much information. Right. Um, but we have to break things to know if they work. So what would be an example of, of something compelling you create where you had emotions as the driving uh, trigger? I, I would like to talk about... Please don't say a car commercial. Because, no, because I'd be so a, disappointed. It won't be a car commercial. <laughs> I think there's some really interesting therapeutic applications for this, um, huh. especially in virtual reality. The idea of for like PTSD or something. Yeah, well, also just I mean, looking back at all the work that's been done for biofeedback, um, this idea to be able to have um, attention or or clarity as to what your body is doing or feeling at a certain moment and seeing it and then being able to try and control that element in yourself. Um, uh, guided meditation, hmm. I can see that being something that's really interesting um, where you're, you're visualizing yourself and you can see yourself and you can control yourself because you have feedback. Um, I think that's really I think that's fascinating. I think there, there's um, worlds that we can build based on people's emotions like huge immersive mood rings that are kind of interesting. I think that there's an opportunity for people to gain even further empathy. Say in this discussion, if you and I were arguing about something, say politics, um, what if I could see into your heart in a way that I understand exactly how what my words are making you feel? Like through through augmented reality, right? Yeah, augmented reality and 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 biometrics. And whether you know, right now we're limited because of the the form factor of how we gather biometrics and, and also the, the head-mounted displays, but as those things get more elegant and smaller and smaller and smaller, I think there's something interesting about um, having a meaningful conversation with somebody and actually seeing how they feel beyond facial expression I, I, I remember reading years ago a science fiction story where, where, where they'd effectively created an internet of emotions. Oh, really? I think oh. they called it the new sphere or something like okay. that. And, yeah. and, 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 and because everyone's emotions effectively went online, it, it mm -hmm. sort of ended a lot of conflict. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Because we were all essentially networked. Right, uh, right. And, and so I think it's a really interesting idea that you, you propose that, you know, through augmented reality, some sort of response, if, if you can actually see the way someone is interacting with your material, mm -hmm. your content, your advertising, your discussion, mm -hmm. it changes your delivery. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, there's so many opportunities with that. And it's also kind of spooky in some ways because there is the, you know, you're, you're talking about absolute transparency between two people. So I can see, it, you know, couples therapy, probably fantastic, you know? <laughs> or, or it could be that episode of The Simpsons, you know, where they're all given a, a, a button to electrocute each other. Totally. <laughs> 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 I'll bring you down the power grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, can, it can do some weird things too. I'm sure there's... There's always the uh, surprising and unexpected um, possibility that somebody comes up with, and you're like, "Ooh, boy, I don't know about that." Uh, when you look, it feels like we're right on the threshold of some of these things hitting mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, what I worry about is whether this is just going to be the 21st century equivalent of interactive CD-ROMs. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that there's going to be this sort of flurry that I mean, you remember? I don't know if you remember that CD-ROMs were going to change everything. Like it was going to, it was, yeah. it was the end of movies. Everything's going to be multi-part, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course everyone realized that they weren't actually. Um, a, a great Hollywood film director, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they just rather leave it to the pros. Yeah. Um, do you think that's that, or do you think that we're really on the threshold of something that's going to change the way that we interact and, and watch entertainment? I think, I yeah, I think that's. I absolutely believe it's complete, complete change and evolution because 
it's foundational to so many new things. Like the way that we look at, if you look at VR right now, and it's you know this sort of large, inelegant headset and and limited access and and strange limitations to interaction. That's just. Does it feel, does it feel like a first generation mobile phone to you? Yeah, it's just now. You know, it's yeah. it, it and it's moving so quickly that I have a lot of there's so many opportunities in the future. So, if you look at something like. 3D TV or CD-ROMs, these are effectively, you know, changes either in, in a physical medium or, or an augmentation to content that right. already exists. It's not a sea change in any way um, for the way that you experience it. And with, with, with VR, you are starting to think about concepts like orderless computing. Um, the internet is, not, is no longer a place that you visit through a window, but a location you go to. And, and inhabit. Um, these are the things where we start to remove the window and the device and start immersing ourselves with it. That changes everything. So just foundationally, that possibility is crazy. You know. I, I was going to ask you what, what you what you think the the future VR internet look like because I, I remember, as I'm sure you do, in the early days of the internet, when we thought the future of shopping was going to be a sort of an isometric. Oh, uh, yeah. image of someone pushing a, a trolley down a virtual right. shelves right and, and you know people are going to pull things off virtual. And then, then we just realized that a flat 2d display of inventory was actually far more effective and sold yes. more goods yes <laughs> yeah uh, so once you get past the novelty of it i mean mm. what what do you think a vr internet looks like oh my gosh Honestly, I don't know. I think that's it's actually. Is it going to be neuromancer? We're going we're gonna to do we're going to do the things that we do always when we have new technologies. We're going to try and use the tools that worked in the past and post rationalize them into the new medium. We're going to have floating windows that we touch and interact. I guarantee that'll be happening for a while until we come up with a new vocabulary. Um, well, it's, I mean, a bit, it's a bit like iOS, right? You know, yeah. we, which used to be full of like kind of uh, Trump loyal effects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we exactly. go to that design where it all just kind of disappears. Oh yeah, you have you'll have all these weird <clears throat> vestigial holdovers from previous design um, vocabularies, trying to you know ram in there because we're trying to just make stuff and figure out what works. But that's the that's the good, the bad, and the odd, right? You have to do it to find out find success. Um, so inevitably, that's going to happen. I mean, that's already kind of happening. The floating windows and you touch them. Um, <laughs> But there is there's there's no best practices for UX and UI in virtual reality yet. That's still being discovered. Um, so to try and predict what the internet will look like is so challenging right now. What about from an aesthetic point of view? I mean, what what aesthetic mm. appeals to you? Like, if you were going to design a navigational in interface to all this stuff, I'm I'm a big fan of natural metaphor. I like I like it when technology is or at least digital interface or design is couched in something that feels intuitively natural to me, like um, the way the wind moves or the way that tidal patterns work or using things like gravity and magnetism, all these, all these real world physical experiences, the way that fish swarm, you know, the, these things always feel very good to me because I connect to them in an intuitive way. It connects to my experience. And I'm, I like interfaces and design that emulate that. And I think that'll probably be a big part of what VR interaction will look like, simply because you have a volume and you're replicating reality in a certain way, or you're remixing reality. Might as well remix these systems and turn them into interaction models of some sort. That's really interesting. I mean, you can imagine a, a distant future in which 
you're visualizing complex enterprise information mm. there's a change in a natural system oh yeah exactly right I, I, like there's storm clouds outside the window and that's kind of alerting you that there's something going on with your accounts receivable yes absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and you know and and all the you, you taking a lot of vocabulary also from infographics and really yeah. good data visualizations and when you blend them together there's this interesting application of you know this value equals um all the grains of sand on a beach in Fiji, right? Like you start to understand a volume of things because it relates to like, oh, all the grains of sand, oh, that's a lot, yeah. you know? And and doing that visually in space is gonna be really It's got, it's got with the digital equivalent of like the pathetic fallacy in theater. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you wonder, because I mean, for us, we'll go through that transition period, but for our kids who grow up with this stuff, they they end up having a much more intuitive understanding of data and information mm. and uh, interaction than we could ever hope for, because they won't know any different. No, they won't know any different. I, and I also don't know if that's good or bad either. You know, I think there's a lot of discussions about what uh, technology, how technology forms the way, forms our culture, our, our worldview as we're growing up. And, um, you know, I, I have younger designers that work for me and I can make references to things and we sort of bump heads a little bit because their relationship to culture is through the internet or their, their smartphone. And, right. and, and they, they interact with information and their references in a different way than I do. Um, I remember VHS tapes, you know, I used, I love video stores. I love the artwork on video, you know, on video covers. Um, you must have loved Ready Player One, right? Oh, I love, oh, Ready Player One, so good. Um, so I, my, my, that mixture of sentiment and nostalgia and memory when used as a reference with other designers, it, we, we sometimes bump heads in because we don't have the same thing. And that's only in, that's only in the world of design or, or creative development, but I can see that up in other places. And it'll become even more prominent when we have this, again, this evolutionary step forward in the way that people interact with information. Am I going to be able to work with designers that were born in the virtual reality age? It's going to, you know, I'm going to need a translation device of some sort. It'll it'll be interesting to see the the effect that it has on it, because we already see the effect that mobile phones have had on this new generation. Yeah. Uh, So a generation that's grown up in VR, Mm -hmm. um, I guess we'll build a very different world. Yeah. Because the the people who built the first internet grew up with BBSs. Right. And the well. Right. um, And a kind of a, almost a 60s and 70s counterculture, Mm -hmm. which has now been kind of, I guess, mown over by the people who build big infrastructure and shopping malls. Yeah. But 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 I think you're right. We we, we can't really um, anticipate the aesthetic from our point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, I it, you you want to dream ahead, but it's it's moving so fast that I feel like anytime I think about it, I'm going to be wrong in 5 minutes anyway. <laughs> well, what what most excites you at the moment at working on on, on these technologies and, and platforms? As a filmmaker, I I'm excited because I get to revisit my past as an interactive developer and I get to fuse it with the filmmaking career that I've, that I've built and I get to find new ways to interact with an audience. I get to find new and even more powerful ways to make people feel something. And as, as, as a filmmaker, as, as, a, as a creator of any sort of moving image or cinematic experience, the opportunity to amplify emotion um, and connection with your audience cannot be ignored. It's, it's amazing. And that's what's so exciting to me is, again, everything that we do now, a good, bad, or odd, allows us to take a tiny step forward to figure out how we make better work to make people feel more strongly and, and how to connect with them. 
that's super exciting. And it's irregardless of you know, input-output devices and resolution, it's, it's an inevitable goal that we're all working towards. Rama, it was great to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Cheers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.